Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, and today's episode is on eugenics. So I am switching the order that we usually do. Usually we do a themes episode and then a case study after we do our three episodes on government, money, and education. But this week I am going to switch and do the case study first, and that'll be this episode on eugenics. And then next week we'll do the themes episode. And the reason I'm doing that is because eugenics is involved in the themes that we have been talking about and will talk about uh, for the new world order and old world ideas. So since that will come up, it makes a lot more sense to go ahead and cover it first. That way you are aware of kind of what's going on here and all the background information. So I've done this once before. Last time it was on accident when I switched the order, but this time it is deliberate, and so that's what we're going to do. So I guess the first thing that we should do technically is go over the definition of eugenics. So in case you are unaware of the exact meaning or you just have a rough idea, let's go ahead and say what the official stated definition is, and that is this. Eugenics. The science of improving a human population by controlled breeding to increase the occurrence of desirable, heritable characteristics. Developed largely by Francis Galton as a method of improving the human race, it fell into disfavor only after the perversion of its doctrines by the Nazis. So that's the official definition of eugenics. It is improving the human race through breeding, pretty much, through having control over what babies are born is the main thing. You want to make sure that the best possible outcomes will come out out of new babies. And so you don't want new human beings born that are undesirable or have genetic deficiencies or that aren't part of the kind of more elite, genetically elite group of human beings that exist. And so we'll talk about kind of where all these ideas come from and the evolution there. So what we're going to do is start off with Plato and Aristotle, and we've been talking about them off and on over the past few episodes. And so we'll start off with them because that's pretty much the earliest that I can find easily where they clearly state the eugenics protocol. And then we'll get into Darwin and Francis Galton, his cousin, And that is where the term eugenics was actually coined, and that's where that comes from. We'll give an example of a textbook that talks about eugenics, and then we'll get into kind of the more timeline section where I'll talk about uh, sterilization bills and laws and eugenics organizations and who is involved with that. We will, again, bring up the Carnegies and Rockefellers and other names that you have heard before. You've heard William Beveridge and um, George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells. A lot of these people came up in the Society of the Elect episode, and they will come up again. So that's the way it goes. And then we're going to get into kind of a few modern-day examples And we'll go over the concept in general to wrap everything up. And I've got some quotes from a lot of people. There are quite a few quotes here, and um, I tried to just pick ones from famous people like usual. We've got 
presidents and world leaders and just famous people in general. So we'll go over those so that you can see that this isn't just a fringe idea that random, horrible, despicable people have had through the centuries. This is an idea that many of the elite, many of the leaders of the world have shared these opinions. Many writers, many actors, many politicians, many CEOs, lots of different people have shared these opinions. Now, in today's world, these opinions are not really shared openly anymore because largely of the effect that the Nazi campaign had. But these ideas do come under different forms and different names. And we'll talk more about that in the New World Order section of the next episode. But that's roughly our outline for today. So let's go ahead and just dig in and get started. So let's start off with Plato. And I will read a few quotes from him coming from The Republic and then one from Laws. And this will give a rough idea of his views, or a few snippets at least, and I'll talk about them. So he said, quote, The good must be paired with the good, and the bad with the bad. And the offspring of the one must be reared, and of the other destroyed. In this way, the flock will be preserved in prime condition. And then he later wrote that extending medical treatment to these children or their parents would do, quote, No good, either for the patients themselves or for the state. And that was talking about the people that were the bad, the the people that were less desirable. We shouldn't extend medical treatment to them and keep them alive because it's, it's no good for them and it's no good for the state. So let's just not do that and let them die. Uh, The next... um, thing that he mentioned was that he insisted that, quote, madmen and beggars, whom he considers mentally impaired creatures, must be completely segregated and, quote, purged from the state. And that was from his book, Laws. So you get the idea, and he wrote many other things, but Plato's view was that we should treat human beings just like we treat flocks of animals. And It does make sense, where if you have humans that are strong, that are intelligent, that have charisma, that have good genetic heritage, then those are the human beings that should breed together. And that way, we keep those traits in the next generation and then pass that along to the next generation. And over time, we, at a bare minimum, keep that same standard for human beings in general. Now, the issue is that if you have these less desirable people, people who are defective, who have genetic disorders, who are prone to catching illnesses and diseases like having a weak immune system, or people that are not very pretty, or that aren't very handsome, or that are weak, just all these types of traits, people that are liars and criminals... These are all things that you do not want to pass along to the next generation, and it's much better if you just cut it off. So either you make sure that these people don't breed, somehow stop them from breeding, or you could basically kill the children, whether through abortion or infanticide. Both of those ways are mentioned by Plato and Aristotle both. And so this way you can limit how much these less desirables breed, and you maximize the amount of breeding you have with more of the elite status of human beings, 
And through that method, you have the best state and citizenry possible because you are going to have the best humans possible genetically, at least that you can do and that he could think of in his time. Speaking of limiting the amount of children born in certain groups, he wrote later, quote, a numerical limit must be set upon procreation. And that was in politics too. And that's specifically talking about making sure that you only have a certain amount of people that are born and that those people that are born are the elite class that are breeding together. Now, with Aristotle, he wrote, quote, from deformed parents come deformed children, lame from lame and blind from blind. And then he also wrote that there should be a law against, quote, nourishing those that are deformed. So he has basically the same views as Plato, although they differ heavily in a lot of their views on the state and society in general. When it comes to eugenics, they have a lot of very similar views. And this is basically that when you have people that are deformed, he mentions, or lame or blind or basically anyone with defects, and these people classified anyone that presented bad behavior as having defects as well, then you don't want them to breed because you'll just get more of the same. You'll get more defective children and human beings and citizens, and we don't want that. He also says, similar to Plato, that there should be a law against nourishing those that are deformed. So it's basically if a baby is born and it's deformed or sickly or something's wrong with it, then they shouldn't, you should just let it die. You just don't nourish it. Um, you have examples from Sparta where they would throw deformed babies over a cliff and actively kill them that way. There are societies that would take the babies out into the woods and into different places and leave them there. Some believed it was kind of like a sacrifice, and others just believed it was the right way to do it, and you just leave them there and basically let them starve. And there are many ways that people go about this. There were such things as abortions that were done differently than they are today, but you have lots of different methods for this. But the point is that you should prevent the breeding of those that are of the lower classes as much as possible. And then even when they do breed, get rid of as many of the children as possible. And so by whatever means you can, whether it be from prevention or active effort afterwards, we need to limit the number of these less desirable human beings from being born and being allowed to grow up and be citizens. At the same time, we need to maximize the amount of elites that are breathing together and maximize the amount of better human beings that are being born, and that way, generation after generation, it just gets better. So those were the views from Aristotle and Plato that were old views. Now, as we get later on, we're going to jump all the way up to the 1700s, mid to late 1700s, and we get to Thomas Robert Malthus. And this is where you have the Malthusian theory, if you've heard of that, or Malthusian eugenics. And let me read just a little section here on who he was. Thomas Robert Malthus, an English cleric and scholar, published his theory in his 1798 writings, An Essay on the Principle of Population. He believed that through preventative checks and positive checks, the population would be controlled to balance the food supply with the population level. 
So yes, you see a parallel here that whether it be from preventative or positive checks, just like Aristotle and Plato said, you either prevent it or you actively act afterwards, that the population can be controlled. Now, what Malthus is known for and what he made the biggest impact on was his theory that human population grows exponentially, but resources in the world only grow arithmetically. And so while the population, if you're if you picture a graph in your head, a chart, and you have a line that goes from left to right, population has this steep curve straight up pretty much. And resources have a curve that is more to the right with only a slight incline. And so at first, we have a lot more resources than we have people. So that line for resources starts, say, halfway up the chart, and the line for people starts near the bottom. So what happens is that as we start using resources and we continue to consume them, although we may get more, say, food supply, we start breeding sheep and cows and livestock in general and growing our own food. So we can get more food than we used to be able to get as society progresses and technology progresses. It's not that much more. We only have slight increases as time goes on. And so that line goes to the right and only slightly rises. However, with population, one person has three kids and each one of those three kids has, say, four kids and each one of those, even if they only have two kids, you get the point. It branches. You can picture a family tree and how many you get just from those original two. And so population growth grows exponentially and it grows, has a very steep curve up. And so what happens is that at some point, the population will cross the line for resources. And when that happens, there will be more people than there will be resources to support them. And that was his big theory and his big statement and impact that he made. And that was that there is a limited amount of resources. However, there are so many people and that number keeps growing and growing and growing that basically we're going to run out of stuff. And then the population won't be able to sustain itself. And this is the problem. We need to do something about this. And you can see, obviously, that that leads to the idea of eugenics. But also, this was during the British Empire when they were seeking after new lands, as was France and Spain and a lot of other countries. And so as this idea started to spread, we have the expansion of empires start to increase as well because they all started getting the same idea that there's only a certain amount of resources out there in the world and we want to control them, our empire. We want to make sure we have control over them so we can support our people, support our country, and grow our power. And so if we ever do run out of resources, at least we are going to be well off and we are going to have everything we need. We'll have the power to fend off those that come after us. And that was the idea. So you also have this side impact of increasing the expansion of empires as well, through this ideology of a limited number of resources that is dwindling and population is exploding. And so this was the beginning of the idea of overpopulation. Malthus actually did have some specific suggestions when it comes to population control. He did specify family planning, where you plan the amount of children you're going to have and when you have children. He was all for late marriages, because if you get married later in life, then you're probably going to have less kids, and celibacy, where you just don't have any kids because you are not participating in the act that creates kids. 
So those were some of his ideas at the time. We There wasn't really the birth control that we have nowadays or abortion clinics or things like that. So he was thinking more, yeah, that you do it naturally, that you just try to spread the word and convince people and create some societal norms that would be more conducive to lowering the population growth. The next big impact on the eugenics movement came from Charles Darwin. So if we jump ahead later in the 1800s, we have Darwin with two books that were extremely influential. We first had The Origin of Species, and the full name on that would be Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. So very long title there, and it gets a little more specific and talks about favored races and natural selection and that kind of thing. And uh, when he writes this book, he mainly talks about how populations evolve over generations and over time, and he is specifically talking about animals. Now, we do know, and it's pretty obvious, that if all other animals seem to evolve over time as a species, then, well, obviously, it's probably the same for human beings because we are animals, in a sense, um, as far as these types of topics are concerned, at least. But Darwin doesn't specify human beings and the human race in this book. However, when you get to 1871... He publishes The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. And so this definitely hits on what we're talking about. This is when he has the biological adaptation of sexual selection and the rating of races. So we are getting into sexual selection instead of natural selection. So it has to do with breeding and it has to do with human beings and that depending on who breeds and what traits are bred, then he basically just applies all the same ideas that came from Origin of the Species to the human race and gets a lot more specific. He also rates races. So you have some races that are more favored than others. If you remember, favored races was in the title of Origins of Species. And as you could probably guess, it's just pretty much the lighter your skin is, the higher you rank, and the darker your skin is, the lower you rank. So a lot of racism here, obviously. But when you get into the African races, then you have the dark-skinned blacks that he viewed as being basically at the bottom of the list, just barely above um, monkeys and gorillas. And then you have the in-between to get into Hispanics and Asians, and then you get into the top of the list is the white Europeans, and those were the best and greatest human beings that were around. And so these were the ones that if you are going to implement a breeding program and implement what he talks about in Descent of Man, these are the ones you really want breeding. He specifically talks about how only a small percentage of the human race is evolving, just this tiny percentage. The majority of the human race is stagnant or is devolving. And so what really gets promoted here is the idea that you want to have this small bit of the human race that's evolving. You want to make sure that that grows. You want more of that because we want the human race to evolve. But more than that, you want to have control of that. You want to make sure that those who are evolving are those that are in 
the elite circles. Darwin was very wealthy, and he came from a very elite family as well, as did his cousin Galton, which we'll get into next. And he definitely had the elitist view on the world and on society in general. So as a little bit of a side note, after the books that Darwin wrote, within a 30-year span after that, you have the majority of the elite colleges in America get founded, colleges and boarding schools. And there was this idea that elites were having in America when they were influenced by these ideologies of eugenics that they wanted their children to be part of this elite evolving group. But the only way to do that is to make sure that they are going to marry other people that are from the elite evolving group, and you can carry that on and carry on your family name and make sure that your family is part of this section of the human race that is evolving and improving. Well, how do you do that? You can't really tell a teenager who they're going to marry, and although technically you can, and people have done that throughout the ages, at this point in time, that was not really nearly as common as it used to be. Most people were meeting someone of the opposite sex on their own and falling in love with them, and that's how they got married. So what would they do? Well, if you have a boarding school that you send your kids off to when they're teenagers and you have an elite college that you pay for them to go to as they get a little older as well, then you make sure that as they are in their ages that they're going to be meeting people and that they're going to be breeding and making their decisions on who they're going to marry, then the only people they're around are other people from elite families. And so you are greatly increasing your chances that your son or your daughter will be married to someone else that is in this elite class and in this evolving selection of the human race, and your family will continue down that path and be a part of this. And so that's the goal. Now, to get back on track with where we were, we were wrapping up with Charles Darwin, and I would like to wrap his section up with a quote from what he had written in The Descent of Man. He wrote, quote, With savages, the weak in body or mind are soon eliminated, and those that survive commonly exhibit a vigorous state of health. We civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination— we build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick. We institute poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to the last moment. There is reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands who, from a weak constitution, would formerly have succumbed to smallpox. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind— no one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. It is surprising how soon a want of care, or care wrongly directed, leads to the degeneration of a domestic race. But, excepting in the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed. So you get the point. That was Charles Darwin's view of the human race and what we need to do. That we are hurting ourselves when we are protecting the weak and the poor and giving vaccinations and supporting those who have weak immune systems, just all kinds of stuff. The people that are mentally ill and people that are very sick and people that are probably 
not really the cream of the crop. We are letting them live, and then therefore we're letting them breed, and then it's just not good for the race. So that sums up what Darwin thought about eugenics. Now to the man who coined the term eugenics himself in 1883, we have Francis Galton, who was the cousin of Charles Darwin and who was also from a very elite circle And let's start off with a quote from him this time in his book, Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development. He wrote, I quote, A brief word to express the science of improving stock, which is by no means confined to questions of judicious mating, but which, especially in the case of man, takes cognizance of all influences that tend, in however remote a degree, to give to the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable than they otherwise would have had. So he's, again, talking about how the human race is rated according to races, and that we want to make sure that the best races and the most elite from those groups those are the ones who breed more, and we have to make sure that we give them a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable. And so it doesn't matter how you do this. He specifically says that it's not confined to talking about breeding or judicious mating, the way he worded it, but that it's really anything that even just to a remote degree would impact this philosophy And so he talks about basically the same stuff Darwin does, but he gets a little more specific. Like I said, he coined the term eugenics specifically. And with that, that comes from the Greek word for well. That's where the EU comes from. And then the second half comes from genos, which is offspring. And so you end up with the word that means well-born or something to that extent, and that's the idea of eugenics. You want the best of the human race to be born more and to have more of them and create more offspring that are better, and that is the idea of eugenics. Now, Galton has a few recommendations himself on how to implement these things. He recommends high-ranking families and bloodlines, at least from his perspective, that they marry early and that they be encouraged to have many children. And so this will help them to prevail speedily over the less suitable people and races. And so he's trying to increase the birth rate for the elite classes and the elite races. And he focuses on that more than decreasing the breeding of the lesser races. But he also mentions that as well. So let's jump ahead again to a later date. We're going to go all the way to 1905. So we're out of the 1800s into the 1900s. And at the beginning in 1905, we had the first sterilization bill proposed in Pennsylvania. And sterilization is just what it sounds. You sterilize someone so that they cannot have children. And this came out of the same eugenics ideology of making sure that the Lesser races and lesser genetic stock wouldn't be able to breed more, and so you have forced sterilization. Oftentimes this would be if someone commits a crime of some sort, then they're sterilized. Or if somebody needs money and support from the government, then they have to agree to sterilization. Sometimes this happened a lot with black families in America, where if a woman was pregnant and was going to give birth and went to the hospital... 
some doctors would only deliver the baby if the mother consented to being sterilized during the procedure. So he would deliver the baby, sterilize the mom, and move on. And so then the mother would only be able to have one child. And that is the same idea. And a lot of times, eugenics and racism are combined together. As you can imagine, they fit together very well, or very poorly, however you want to say that. So as we get into the beginning of state involvement in eugenics, like I mentioned, in 1905, you had the first bill proposed, but it did get vetoed. So although it came through, it got vetoed, and it wasn't until 1907, two years later, that the first official sterilization bill was passed in Indiana. Now, this occurs all over the world in the 1900s, uh, specifically the early 1900s. So let me give you a breakdown of some of the countries I came across. I can't go over all of them because there are so many. It's kind of ridiculous. But specifically, um, Alberta and British Columbia, China, Bangladesh, Germany, India, Israel, and the Israel one, they were forcing Ethiopian women to take birth control shots. And this was actually in the 2000s. So kind of interesting and recent. We have, moving on, Japan, Peru, Russia, South Africa, Sweden, Switzerland, and in the United States, there were 33 different states that had compulsory sterilization programs. Coming on the back of all of this legislation was a very impactful woman, Margaret Sanger, and she opens the first birth control clinic in 1916. So Margaret Sanger was a racist and eugenicist. She was part of the Eugenic Society, and she spoke at many KKK rallies, and she was a big proponent of eugenics and racism. And I would like to read quite a few quotes from her. I'll just run them all together so you can get an idea of what her views were. Quote, But for my view, I believe that there should be no more babies. The most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. We don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. I accept an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan. I was escorted to the platform, was introduced, and began to speak. In the end, through simple illustrations, I believed I had accomplished my purpose. A dozen invitations to speak at similar groups were offered. I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world that have disease from their parents, that have no chance in the world to be a human being practically. Delinquents, prisoners, all sorts of things just marked when they're born. That, to me, is the greatest sin that people can, can commit. The most serious evil of our times is that of encouraging the bringing into the world of large families. The most immoral practice of the day is breeding too many children. Eugenics without birth control seems to us a house builded upon the sands. It is at the mercy of the rising stream of the unfit. As an advocate of birth control, I wish to take advantage of the present opportunity to point out that the unbalance between the birth rate of the unfit and the fit, admittedly the greatest present menace to civilization, can never be rectified by the inauguration of a cradle competition between these two classes. The most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the over-fertility of the mentally and physically defective. 
No more children should be born when the parents, though healthy themselves, find that their children are physically or mentally defective. A marriage license shall in itself give husband and wife only the right to a common household and not the right to parenthood. No women shall have the legal right to bear a child and no man shall have the right to become a father without a permit for parenthood. Permits for parenthood shall be issued upon application by city, county, or state authority to married couples, providing they are financially able to support the expected child, have the qualifications needed for proper rearing of the child, have no transmissible diseases, and, on the women's part, no medical indication that maternity is likely to result in death or permanent injury to health. No permit for parenthood shall be valid for more than one birth. Apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is tainted, or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring. These two words, birth control, sum up our whole philosophy. It means the release and cultivation of the better elements in our society, and the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Organized charity in itself is the symptom of a malignant social disease. My own position is that the Catholic doctrine is illogical, not in accord with science, and definitely against the social welfare and race improvement. All our problems are the result of overbreeding among the working class. Knowledge of birth control is essentially moral. Its general, though prudent, practice must lead to a higher individuality and ultimately a cleaner race. Feeble-mindedness perpetuates itself from the ranks of those who are blandly indifferent to their racial responsibilities. It is largely this type of humanity we are now drawing upon to populate our world for the generations to come. In this orgy of multiplying and replenishing the earth, this type is parapasu multiplying and perpetuating those dearest desires in which we must, if civilization is to survive, extirpate by the very roots. Birth control itself, often denounced as a violation of natural law, is nothing more or less than the facilitation of the process of weeding out the unfit, of preventing the birth of defectives or of those who will become defectives. If we are to make racial progress, this development of womanhood must precede motherhood in every individual woman. So those were the ideas of Margaret Sanger. She was the one that opened the first birth control clinic. And then in 1921, she started the American Birth Control League. And from those quotes, I'm sure you have gotten her views and what her goals were with all this, with birth control and the Birth Control League. However, shortly after this, in 19, the 1930s, roughly, the Nazis brought into effect the Nuremberg race laws, and Hitler came into power, and the term eugenics really got a bad name. And so, with this, the American Birth Control League and Margaret Sanger had a very bad name, the Eugenics Society had a very bad name, and so there were a lot of name changes. One of those was changing the name of the American Birth Control League to Planned Parenthood. And that sounded a lot better, and they stopped using the term eugenics and started talking about things like women's rights. 
My goal today is not to get into the abortion debate. We did talk about that some in a previous episode, but the point here is just to talk about eugenics and the background of eugenics, the history of it, how it progressed, and where it existed. And the reality is that the history of Planned Parenthood is full of the topic of eugenics, and so that's all we'll say there. But again, in the 1930s, the Nazis made the term to... Eh, not really be looked upon favorably, and so you don't really hear that term openly used much after that time period. So the next thing I want to mention is a textbook, and the textbook is a civic biology presented in problems, and usually just referred to as civic biology. This was written by George William Hunter and published in 1914, And it is the book which the state of Tennessee required high school teachers to use in 1925, and it's best known for its section about evolution. And this section was ruled by a local court to be in violation of the State Butler Act. The teaching of this textbook is what led to the trial with John Scopes that was in Dayton, Tennessee, called the Scopes Monkey Trial, And the views espoused in the textbook about evolution and race and eugenics were common to American progressives. And this was especially true in the work of Charles Benedict Davenport, who is one of the most prominent American biologists of the early 20th century, and who Hunter cites a lot in the book. And so this book was very influential. Like I said, it was mandatory reading for some teachers, And this was in our schools, in the public school system. So let me read a little bit from that, a section that is part of the controversy that existed at the time. And this is from George Hunter's textbook under the title of The Races of Man. At the present time, there exist upon the earth five races or varieties of man, each very different from the other in instincts, social customs, and to an extent in structure. These are the Ethiopian or Negro type, originating in Africa, the Malay or brown race from the islands of the Pacific, the American Indian, the Mongolian or yellow race, including the natives of China, Japan, and the Eskimos, and finally, the highest type of all, the Caucasians, represented by the civilized white inhabitants of Europe and America. Under the title of Improvement of Man, we have this writing. If the stock of domesticated animals can be improved, it is not unfair to ask if the health and vigor of the future generations of men and women on the earth might not be improved by applying to them the laws of selection. This improvement of the future race has a number of factors in which we as individuals may play a part. These are personal hygiene, selection of healthy mates, and the betterment of the environment. Under the title of eugenics, when people marry, there are certain things that the individual as well as the race should demand. The most important of these is freedom from germ disease, which might be handed down to the offspring. Tuberculosis, syphilis, that dread disease which cripples and kills hundreds of thousands of innocent children, epilepsy, and feeble-mindedness are handicaps which it is not only unfair but criminal to hand down to posterity. The science of being well-born is called eugenics. Under the title of Parasitism and Its Cost to Society 
Hundreds of families such as those described above exist today, spreading disease, immorality, and crime to all parts of this country. The cost to society of such families is very severe. Just as certain animals or plants become parasitic on other plants or animals, these families have become parasitic on society. They not only do harm to others by corrupting, stealing, or spreading disease, but they are actually protected and cared for by the state out of public money. Largely for them, the poorhouse and the asylum exist. They take from society, but they give nothing in return. They are true parasites. And then under the title of Remedy. If such people were lower animals, we would probably kill them off to prevent them from spreading. Humanity will not allow this, but we do have the remedy of separating the sexes in asylums or other places and in various ways preventing intermarriage and the possibilities of perpetuating such a low and degenerate race. Remedies of this sort have been tried successfully in Europe and are now meeting with some success in this country. So that is from a textbook that was mandatory reading in many different schools in our public school system in America. And you can see what was being taught there. There is a lot that gets taught in our schools, usually at the high school and college level, that is more about social engineering than it is about individual education. And we do talk about that in our education episode, so I will not get into that here. But just want to give some examples of how the state basically promotes these types of ideas, not only through the legislation of sterilization bills and things like the Tuscany experiment. If you remember that example where people were given vaccines, but they're actually being injected with syphilis. And yeah, you have that whole deal there. A lot of these sterilization laws were actually implemented under the guise of vaccines in the early 1900s. So we have other connections there that I won't get into. We're not getting into the vaccine debate either. But all of this does come into play. All of these are factors. So let's move on to the next section that'll be on different groups that were involved. So I just want to shortly go over some different eugenics groups. We had eugenics movements in America that received extensive funding from the Carnegie Institute, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the Harrimans. And so basically all of the top names of the elite people and the very wealthy robber barons and people like this, yes, they were all funding. Uh, I say all. I believe they were all funding, but at least most of them, I have found proof, were funding eugenics movements in general. In 1904, you actually had the Carnegie Institution Station for Experimental Evolution that opens, and that is a eugenics institution. You also just have these groups funding the Eugenics Record Office in New York, and this was in 1911. You have in America the American Breeders Association in 1903 that was established, and then they later changed their name, like a lot of people did, to the American Genetic Association in 1914. That sounded a lot better. You have the Galton Institute that was renamed to the Eugenics Society in 1926. They actually went the opposite way and brought eugenics into the name. And they actually housed the offices for Planned Parenthood. Now, 
Another example that I found of funding in groups is much more recent, in August of 2018. And in this case, the University of Arizona received $458,000 from the Pioneer Fund. And the Pioneer Fund is one that promotes eugenics. And so they donate a lot of money to the University of Arizona. But not only that, they gave $7.8 million to 48 different organizations, 22 universities. And this was from the time period of 1998 to 2016. So almost $8 million was given out from the Pioneer Fund to influential organizations and universities, and the goal of the Pioneer Fund was to spread the ideology of eugenics, among other things. So, yeah, we see this existing in today's world as well. We have the World Bank as a very good example. I mentioned some of this stuff in our episode on corrupt finance, and I'll mention it again here. The World Bank actually pressures third-world governments to implement population control programs. And they do this by basically saying that if you want funding, you must implement population reduction objectives as outlined by the World Bank and UN Population Fund. And so if a country is not willing to do this, then they are not going to receive their funding. And that's basically how it works. Now, when you hear the terms population control programs and population reduction objectives... Hopefully you can see the connections between this and eugenics ideology. And we could get into the details on all these different plans and objectives and implementations, but that goes too far down the rabbit hole than we have time for today. But just wanted to give the examples that do exist today. It is not just an issue of the past. It does exist in today's time as well. Now, Let's go back from today to just more recent history from some famous people. We'll start off from people in Europe, and then we'll move to presidents of the United States and wrap up with Helen Keller. So let's start off with Sidney Webb. He was the co-founder of the London School of Economics, and he carried out research in the 1890s confirming the high fertility of the improvident whom he described as, quote, degenerate hordes unfit for social life. He definitely had a view that certain people were not fit to be breeding. And he is one famous example. And we will move on to William Beveridge. He was a prominent British economist and remarked in 1909, quote, those men who through general defects are unable to fill such a whole place in industry are to be recognized as unemployable with complete and permanent loss of all citizen rights, including not only the franchise, but civil freedom and fatherhood. So again, a lot of this relates not only to physical characteristics, but social status and what class you are in. So if you are unfit to be in even what we would think of as the working class or the middle class, then you're basically not fit to live and not fit to breathe. You don't deserve any rights, and that includes fatherhood, so breeding and having children. Now let's go to another famous British economist, John Maynard Keynes. Quote, The time has already come when each country needs a considered national policy about what size of population, whether larger or smaller than at present, or the same, is most expedient, 
And having settled this policy, we must take steps to carry it into operation. The time may arrive a little later when the community as a whole must pay attention to the innate quality as well as to the mere numbers of its future members. So again, he's specifically saying more population control, I would say, but it's all the same eugenics ideology. Let's go to H.G. Wells. He wrote, and I quote, The way of nature has always been to slay the hindmost, and there is still no other way, unless we can prevent those who would become the hindmost from being born. It is in the sterilization of failures and not in the selection of successes for breeding that the possibility of an improvement of the human stock lies. And he also wrote, quote, The mating of two quite healthy persons may result in disease. I am told it does so in the case of interbreeding of healthy white men and healthy black women about the Tanganyika region. The half-breed children are ugly, sickly, and rarely live. So, yeah, if you mix a white person and a black person, then the baby's going to be ugly, sickly, and probably die according to him, because, of course, the black races are so inferior, and that is why we should prevent them from breeding or from mixing with Caucasian stock, according to Wells. Now, the next person will be George Bernard Shaw. Quote, We should find ourselves committed to killing a great many people whom we now leave living, and to leave living a great many people whom we at present kill. A part of eugenic politics would finally land us in an extensive use of the lethal chamber. A great many people would have to be put out of existence simply because it wastes other people's time to look after them. You must all know half a dozen people at least who are of no use in this world, who are more trouble than they are worth. Just put them there and say, sir or madam, now will you be kind enough to justify your existence? And if you can't justify your existence, if you're not pulling your weight, and since you won't, if you're not producing as much as you consume, or perhaps a little more, then clearly we cannot use the organizations of our society for the purpose of keeping you alive, because your life does not benefit us, and it can't be of very much use to yourself. So that's very clear. We don't have to explain his views at all. Um... The next one is Churchill in a letter to Asquith in 1910. Quote, The unnatural and increasingly rapid growth of the feeble-minded and insane classes, coupled as it is with a steady restriction among all the thrifty, energetic, and superior stocks, constitutes a national and race danger, which is impossible to exaggerate. I am convinced that the multiplication of the feeble-minded, which is proceeding now at an artificial rate, unchecked by any of the old restraints of nature and actually fostered by civilized conditions is a terrible danger to the race. I feel that the source from which the stream of madness is fed should be cut off and sealed up before another year has passed. Churchill also said that sterilization was, quote, simple surgical operation so the inferior could be permitted freely in the world without causing much inconvenience to others. So let's move on to some famous Americans. Let's go with Madison Grant. And this was from his book, The Passing of the Great Race in 1916. He said, 
Where the environment is too soft and luxurious and no strife is required for survival, not only are weak strains and individuals allowed to survive and encouraged to breed, but the strong types also grow fat mentally and physically. Now to John C. Calhoun. With us, the two great divisions of society are not the rich and the poor, but white and black, and all the former, the poor as well as the rich, belong to the upper class and are respected and treated as equals, if honest and industrious and hence have a position and pride of character of which neither poverty nor misfortune can provide them. He also writes, It follows from what has been stated that it is a great and dangerous error to suppose that all people are equally entitled to liberty. It is a reward to be earned, not a blessing to be gratuitously lavished on all alike, a reward reserved for the intelligent, the patriotic, the virtuous, and the deserving, and not to be a boon to be disposed on a people too ignorant, degraded, and vicious to be capable of either appreciating or enjoying it. Nor is it any disparagement to liberty that such is and ought to be the case. On the contrary, its greatest praise, its proudest distinction, is that an all-wise providence has reserved it as the noblest and highest reward for the development of our faculties, moral and intellectual. A reward more appropriate than liberty could not be conferred on the deserving, nor a punishment inflicted on the undeserving more just than to be subject to lawless and despotic rule. This dispensation seems to be the result of some fixed law, and every effort to disturb or defeat it by attempting to elevate a people in the scale of liberty, above the point to which they are entitled to rise, must ever prove abortive and end in disappointment. So he's basically saying that liberty and freedom should only be given to the elite class and According to him, that basically means anybody that's white and anybody that's black does not deserve it. But again, he's promoting the same ideas that you have those that are deserving of certain things and we want to promote them in society and others that are not worthy and they are the less worthy races usually and those are the ones that don't even deserve their own freedom. The next person is Teddy Roosevelt. He said, and I quote, I agree with you if you mean, as I suppose you do, that society has no business to permit degenerates from reproducing their kind. It is really extraordinary that our people refuse to apply to human beings such elementary knowledge as every successful farmer is obliged to apply to his own stock breeding. Any group of farmers who permitted their best stock not to breed and let all the increase come from the worst stock would be treated as fit inmates for an asylum. Yet we fail to understand that such conduct is rational compared to the conduct of a nation which permits unlimited breeding from the worst stocks, physically and morally, while it encourages or connives at the cold selfishness or the twisted sentimentality as a result of which the men and women ought to marry, and if married, have large families, remain celibates, or have no children or only one or two. Someday we will realize that the prime duty, the inescapable duty, of the good citizen of the right type is to leave his or her blood behind him in the world, and that we have no business to permit the perpetuation of citizens of the wrong type. And again, that's pretty clear that we have certain people that should breed and certain people that shouldn't. And it's not just physical traits, but he says it's moral traits as well. So again, anybody that causes trouble, basically breaks the law, then those are the types of people that you don't want breeding. The next quote is from Helen Keller, quote, 
Our puny sentimentalism has caused us to forget that a human life is sacred only when it may be of some use to itself and to the world. Keller also proposed that there should be physicians' juries for defective babies. And so basically they decide whether the baby is fit to live or not. She wrote, quote, It is the possibility of happiness, intelligence, and power that give life its sanctity, and they are absent in the case of a poor, mishappen, paralyzed, unthinking creature. She also said that allowing a, quote, defective child to die was simply, quote, weeding of the human garden that shows a sincere love of true life. So basically she's saying that true life and life that is sacred is only people that will actually contribute to society and to themselves. And if someone is basically unfit, if they are deformed, if they have some physical defects, if there's something wrong with them, then they don't really have the sanctity of life. They, their life is not sacred. That's not true life. True life is only when what we would think of as normal people are alive and are born. And so basically, if they're not, then you should just kill them when they're born. And that was her idea. This is very similar to some of these other quotes that we read where these famous figures were basically saying that people should contribute to society. Like George Bernard Shaw directly says that you should just ask him, will you justify your existence? And if not, then basically you don't deserve to live. That will just kill you. And so if you do not produce more than you consume and give back to society, then there's no reason to keep you alive. Because as Keller says, true life is only life that does contribute to yourself and to others. And if not, then that is not true life. And there is no sacred aspect of that. There's no sanctity there. There's no natural right to life, according to these people, that even if you do say there's a right to life, you define what life is. And as long as you define that very narrowly and very specifically, and that only people that contribute are people that have their right to life, then that's a very different view than a lot of people have. But we saw that also from Calhoun that was saying that certain people don't even deserve to have rights or freedoms. And so these are the ideas of eugenics and eugenics ideology in general. And we, I believe, have covered basically all the basics related to its history and its implementation and what people have said about it and that kind of thing. So basically, we have the elite that may choose to only better themselves and allow the masses to devolve and provide basically labor and resources. That's kind of what it leads to, because they do admit that you can't just kill off everyone that's inferior. And if you take that to the next logical step, even if you were to be able to do that and get away with it, then who's going to run your factories? And who is going to clean your toilets and whatever other you know, job that you don't want to do, undesirable work, who's going to do that? Well, you have to have people to do that. So if you allow these lower classes to still exist, but you just control their numbers and control their minds in general, what they think and what they do and what they are activists for and what they try to 
do as far as influencing society. If you can control all those things about a population, then you just have this working class, lower class. Heck, you can even bring them up to middle class status and you just control them and then they'll be happy. They can continue to produce for you, but you are part of this elite group that is still evolving, that's getting better, that has control over society and really runs these things. And so eugenics is a tool that is used to make sure that you still have that power, that you still are in control of society. They honestly believe that that's, well, typically honestly believe that that's what's best for the human race. It's not just what's best for them because they have the power and control, but it's also best for the human race as a whole because it helps the human race to improve. And that way, humanity will improve, civilization will improve, society in general will improve, and that's good for everyone. So as we've talked about a lot before, it's the idea of the collective versus the individual. And what's best for mankind is the most broad collectivist view you can have. And so it's not just what's best for a region or a nation or a race, but for the entire human race, all of mankind. And again, outside of ethics and morality, it does make sense because if you want the human race to be as good as it possibly can be, and I think most people do, then this would be a good way of doing it. Eugenics would be the correct tool to use. However, the fact is that it's very immoral. You are taking away people's rights, people's freedoms, and taking away people's lives and controlling their decisions and their families, and that's wrong. That would be immoral and unethical by most people's standards, at least. So what does this look like as we go on? Well, we'll talk about how this is involved in the New World Order plans and philosophies in the next episode, but overall, the future is genetics. We have things like designer babies and uh, babies that are scanned and discarded if they are seen to be possibly unfit or if they might have autism, even though the tests for that are only like 50% accurate, but still they're aborting babies because there's you know a chance that they might have autism or they might have a deformality or whatever the case may be. You have altered DNA that's being done. You have all different kinds of things, all related to genetics, and that is the future. And genetics isn't a dirty word. Eugenics is, but genetics is just, it's progressive science. It's a good thing. And so that is more of the term that's being used now. We have population control through government policy and through culture shifts. So we talked about a lot of the policy stuff with the World Bank and, um, birth control and abortion clinics and things like this. We also have the culture shifts where you have the breakdown of the family unit where over half of families are actually divorced and uh, people are getting married a lot later in life. They're having less kids. We have birth control and abortion just being normalized in general. It's no longer looked down upon in society. And in some circles, it's actually praised that you're so brave because you had an abortion you know, how wonderful of you. Let's praise you and lift you up because you did such a brave thing. Well, that's very different than the way society looked at abortions, let's say, a few decades ago. And so you, we do see, regardless of what you believe about abortion and all this other stuff, we do see that there has been a culture shift. And that culture shift has largely been one that benefits the ideology of eugenics. 
And so despite what people's individual views are and opinions are and motives are, as a whole, when you look at society as a whole, we see that this eugenics ideology has been implemented very well. It has progressed very well. It has evolved very well, and it is still going on now. So that wraps up our talk on eugenics. Now you are fully aware of all these aspects, and you can look into these specifics by yourself and get even more details and more examples on all these things. There's a lot of writings out there and research out there and material out there. So check it out. But we're going to wrap up now. If you look at the show notes, you can see our link to our Twitter account. That's at Foundations PC. I have an email address you can reach me at at any time, and that is ourfoundations at protonmail.com. We also have the website there that you can go to and look at the different resources there and the Patreon page if you want to give support financially or look at some of the extra content there. You can go to the Patreon page and that link is there as well. So thank you for the support and thank you for our patron on the Patreon page. Thank you to those who have left a rating and a review. That is very helpful. Please, if you have not done so, please do that. That really helps me to get some feedback, number one. But it also helps promote the show and um, it gets it out there so more people can find it and see it easier. And they can read through the reviews and see if it's something that they may or may not be interested in. And that kind of helps them as well. So thank you very much. Come back next time. We'll go over old world philosophies and the new world order and how all that ties in together. And we'll we'll basically include all the things we've been talking about in this corruption and conspiracy section we've been in and basically all the dark aspects of the state and society. So we'll wrap that up next week and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.